Hello, and welcome to the TV Movie Rewind Podcast with Matt and Todd. Hi, everyone. Today we are discussing the horror thriller sequel, Exorcist 3, also known as Exorcist Legion. Now, Um, go ahead. I was going to say, what was the book called? The book was just Legion, right? The book was titled Legion by William Peter Blatty, who wrote and uh, directed this movie. So this is as pure blatty as you could possibly get. Well, the, actually, it's not because there was studio interference, but we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and this was his second film that he directed? Yes. He also directed the ninth configuration, also known as Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, which, interesting enough, is also considered by him an official sequel to The Exorcist. Right, he calls it like his faith trilogy or something. Yes, and even though even though there was a sequel to The Exorcist, but we're not going to go over that. Um, you know, The Heretic, uh, which you know, just dig into that because that's an, an amusing story behind it. Not a not a very good movie by most accounts, including my own. Um, but have you seen the Ninth Configuration? I have. It's a weird movie that I will fully admit I do not get or appreciate myself. Weird, like um, David Lynch, kind of weird. Yeah, kind of a little bit. Maybe not okay. quite that strange, but um, it's uh, again, it is more faith based, and and it has you know you know the about mankind, and one of the characters in the ninth configuration is the astronaut who is seen in The Exorcist, who uh, the possessed oh, okay. Regan tells he will die up there. Okay. So there is a character from The Exorcist that does end up in the ninth configuration. Okay. Now, before we really get into Exorcist 3, we should discuss why we have not covered Exorcist and why we will likely never cover Exorcist. Sure. Obviously, Exorcist is a, an amazing movie. It's, it's one of the greatest films ever made. It helps cement William Friedkin as a master filmmaker. You know, if the previous film he had made, uh, French Connection, I hadn't already done that. But The Exorcist has been talked about and dissected and critiqued. And right from it, its initial release, um, you know, 50 years ago. Right. I can't imagine there's anything that I could say about The Exorcist that hasn't already been said better sure it's more or less the same reason it's more or less the same reason we don't cover star wars like we love star wars but what are we going to add exactly i I can't imagine saying anything about the exorcist that would even sound that hasn't already been said and would even sound even somewhat intellectual but other than you know like i enjoy the movie it's it's fantastic it's one of the greatest horror films or psychological films or medical dramas ever made however you want to Right, you the the movie, right? Like The Exorcist again is a, it's a movie like Star Wars, and that you have seen it by now if you want to. Like no one has to convince you to to, to right. watch it. Either you're going to see it or you're not. Either you've decided you're right. not going to watch The Exorcist, or you are going to. I mean, it's not yeah, a movie. Or you already have. Yeah. We uh, obviously not something you know any of our listeners right now are saying The Exorcist. Maybe I should look into this movie. What's this about? No. You know The Exorcist. Everybody does. Yeah. Um, the Exorcist, unfortunately, had 
one of the yeah. worst sequels ever made in Exorcist Ooh. to the Heretic. Um, it's, I, I mean, yeah, there's really nothing redeeming about it except for just how bad it really is. Like how out there and just peculiar that movie is. Um, I don't recommend it. I don't think it's very good, but it is, it is one hell of a curiosity. Yeah, and you could almost say that it was an impossible task to make a sequel that lives yeah. up to it. And yet, here we are with The Exorcist 3, which, you know, you can take that 3 however you want to take it, because this is a direct sequel to The Exorcist. Correct. And The Exorcist the, the Exorcist 3 uh, part or connection, that was made up by the studio, right? Like, as it wasn't technically an Exorcist movie. I mean, yeah, it's got Kinderman, and yeah, Benjamin's Karras, and... Uh, but it's not like uh, the movie was originally supposed to be titled Legion, right? Not not technically Exorcist Three. It was the they added that, right? Well, right? obviously like the Exorcist, a... the Exorcist in the name is going to put more butts in the seats and sure. bring more attention to it. Sure. But sure. I mean, on, on one hand, it doesn't discount the Exorcist Two. You know, this isn't right. like halloween h2o that says all those movies that happened before this didn't really happen and we're the true sequel no this is saying i'm the true sequel to exorcist and if you want to consider exorcist to the heretic in there somewhere you go right ahead and do that right right no you're right it does it does um whether that was on purpose or not it really doesn't discount uh exorcist 2 at all it just doesn't really mention it which is just as well no no, but again, this is a direct sequel to The Exorcist, and I'll be upfront. I actually prefer this movie to The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. There's I, a different. There's a much different energy to it. Um, it's both. It, it's both lighter and darker at the same time, too, which is interesting. Very sinister movie. Yeah, uh, and I will watch said, this more often than I'll watch Exorcist for sure. Oh. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm usually more in the mood for this than I am uh, with it, which again, we, you know, we both love Exorcist. It's a brilliant movie, but I, I'm with you. I think at least in terms of like, which one am I more apt to sit down and watch and be in the mood for? It's probably this one. Yeah, and, and, I, will, and I won't say that this is a better movie than The Exorcist. Right. I'm just saying I enjoy it better. Right, right. I know exactly what you mean. I, I, feel, I think I feel the same way. So... As we said, oh, and I should also point out that Blatty's intention really was to make this more of a in line with the his novel, The Exorcist, not so much in line with the movie, The Exorcist. So there are some some inconsistencies in, in the story between, you know, what happens in this movie, like you know, just minor things that you might not even notice. So therefore, I'm not going to bring them up. Either you notice them or you don't. But those minor differences are basically based on what's in the novel, The Exorcist, as opposed to what's in the movie, The Exorcist. Gotcha. So the the movie also did have some studio interference. And there was for a long time thought we would never, and technically it is true. There, there was a, what we will call a director's cut of Exorcist 3 called Legion that Blatty had always hoped before his death that he would be able to assemble a cut of Exorcist 3 that was more in his vision, but much of that footage was lost. Yeah. 
But a few years back, Shout Factory found some of the footage and they pieced together what is as close to what we would get of a director's cut. Uh, some of the footage, unfortunately, is really, really bad. It, you know, yeah. obviously it was degraded. And again, some of the footage is just outright missing. But they did their best possible way of patching together what would be Blatty's original vision. And I have to say, I don't think it's there. There are some parts of it that are better than the theatrical cut, and then some parts that aren't. I actually would like to see somebody make a third cut of the film using pieces of Blatty's cut that were taken out and pieces of the theatrical cut kind of left in. And we'll get into that more as as we discuss the film. I was going to say because I haven't. I know there's. Uh, I'm aware there's a different cut, and I, I'm also aware that there's a. Um, a difference in how it ends right but it, i guess yeah i guess we'll get into it because i'm i'm i wasn't aware that there was a lot else that had changed uh in between i knew about the end like you know that originally there was not an exorcism in the exorcist movie but that's about it right so the main characters well the main character of exorcist 3 is lieutenant william kinderman of the uh well, I think he was. It's in Washington D.C. Yeah, I think it was Georgetown, right? But I he he keeps mentioning Richmond Police Department, so I'm wondering if he's more in Richmond, Virginia. I don't, I don't. It doesn't really matter. But uh, in in The Exorcist, uh, Kinderman was played by uh, Lee J. Cobb. Here he's played by George C. Scott. Another returning character from The Exorcist is Father Dyer, who was played by a Father William O'Malley in The Exorcist. And here he's played by Ed Flanders. So they're the last two characters you kind of see in The Exorcist. And they're the ones that really carry the narrative over. There is another returning character from The Exorcist, but we'll get to that in a, in a little... Because this is also... Not only is this an outright horror movie, supernatural, there's also a detective story here. Well, th- yeah, like, the, um, also a George C. Scott movie. It, it parallels in some ways um, uh, uh, um, The Changeling because it's mostly driven by him and just his fantastic performance. Um Although in this, it's like it's also like his barely contained rage at all of the just the horrors that he has dealt with um, in his entire life. And I love his scenes with uh, Ed Flanders. I love their dialogue in this. Yes. Well, and again, he's playing a homicide detective who has been on the job for many years, has seen many horrible things and has, you know, his best friend is a priest. And often the thing is like, you know, how can there be a God who allows right. these terrible things to happen? And, you know, it's like, well, it's the Lord works in mysterious ways. I don't have the answers will often be the results. So as the movie opens, we get to see these two characters who have become friends, close friends since the events of The Exorcist, which as the movie uh, talks about was 15 years the events of the exorcist took place 15 years prior to the events of these this film which is pretty close in in chronology yes now in the 
in the original Exorcist, Kinderman was noted to be a film buff. He enjoyed going to the movies, and it's something he still enjoys doing. And he does it with his, you know, friend, Father Dyer. And both of them, before we see them meet up at the movie, both of them are having conversations with their own, you know, side casting characters. And both of them talking about, well, yeah, oh, I can't. I have plans. I'm going to go meet Bill Kinderman. It's my day to cheer him up. And then you cut to George C. Scott saying, yeah, I'm going to go see my friend Father Dyer. It's my day to cheer him up. Now, the day they're talking about will be the anniversary of the death of Father Damien Karras from the end of The Exorcist. Now, this movie, if you've seen The Exorcist, when of course you really should, is like we said, it's a direct sequel to the events of the Exorcist, but the movie does also stand very well on its own. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw this be- uh, well before I saw, probably multiple times actually, before I saw the original Exorcist. Oh, really? Um, That's interesting. I didn't I, know that. Well, I mean, this movie came out when I was about 14 or so. And I think, among yeah. other things, I was more inclined to see this than I was to see the Exorcist because I remember, I mean, even going back to, to when the movie came out. I remember the feeling, uh, even though I hadn't seen it, you know, but like sequels, especially the third in a horror franchise, were mostly a joke, right? Or at least were thought of as a joke. Um, So, you know, even for The Exorcist, it was kind of weird. But then I just, I remember there being a buzz about this movie by the time we finally got a chance to see or rent it saying, hey, you know what? This is actually really good. Uh, And I remember we both loved it right away. So I I do remember seeing it very quickly. And I honestly don't think I had seen the, The Exorcist for another several years. I think yes, this is the movie that, that convinced me to watch it. This movie was critically acclaimed and very deservedly so. This is a really scary, creepy movie. Where also like a lot and yet not much happens. Like most everything is described. I, I always think of this movie as, oh, this is a movie where like, you know, this, that, or the, and I always think of like all of the deaths, but it's all the stuff that he describes. Well, um, and. And it's so it's so effectively done because you kind of forget that, oh, yeah, you don't really see all of that, but it's still so creepy. It is essentially a police investigation into serial killing and the hunt for a serial killer. It, uh, right. You can strip away all the supernatural elements. Well, the story wouldn't make sense if you took them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You, if you told the same story the same way and it wasn't supernatural, it would still be a fascinating uh, story because you see Kinderman doing excellent police work. Well, I guess, you, I guess, you know, without the supernatural or at least without the obvious supernatural aspect of it, the movie could be told in a, you know, hey, was he really possessed at the end or wasn't a type of scenario? That's that's how you could leave it. And it'd probably still be pretty effective that way. Which you know, could especially be... if you just remove like the, the dream sequences, which are so strange. Um, memorable, but so very strange. As dreams often yeah. are. And, yeah, and... like Patrick Ewing as the Angel of Death and all, and uh, Fabio. Um, I'm still like, after so many times of seeing this movie, aside from just being unsettling for, this, for the sake of unsettling, uh, which I have a feeling is really most of it, I still don't even really know what most of that is supposed to represent. Well, and that's, I mean, that's an important part of the movie is the ambiguity. There's the the novel is even more ambiguity, ambiguous. Is it really? Yes. Oh wow! It's 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 um it is an obvious possession though, right? Or like I mean, is that is that like it clear? is not? Oh, oh, interesting. So the book Nothing makes it more obvious. ambiguous than this clearly. Okay. 
the the you can read the novel and take it two ways. Got you. So the novel could be read like by the end, you might not be sure like if the guy was just you know had, had completely just lost it or or if he was actually possessed. Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. In fact, the very opening this movie works even better upon repeat viewings because you will see stuff that yes. on your first viewing you will really have no context for but when you watch again you'll realize what you're seeing this movie opens with a dream sequence mm-hmm. that is likely George C Scott's character dreaming but they make no mention or reference to that it's just an off-kilter scene of a narrating voice that is not George C Scott mentioning right. he remembers falling and you, you see the camera panning towards the famous steps of the from The Exorcist. And the only reason you would even kind of know is it's a dream sequence because it's very subtle. But off to the side of the screen, you see a young boy that just is kind of standing there as the camera pans back. And as the panda goes forward more, the boy appears ahead from out of nowhere and is handing a rose off screen because we're getting the a um, POV shot of the person who's kind of having the dream. Yeah. this And you won't know until later that the boy we're seeing is a murder victim who hasn't even been murdered yet. I, I love the way this movie is put together. I love the way it's shot. I love the use of all the strange and unsettling angles. I love the choices it makes. It's a very, very quiet movie, too. Like, there's barely a score to it. In fact, essentially, there is no score. Um, There's a couple of snippets of singing, and then there's some singing at the end. It's all, like, you know, choir uh, singing. And that is such an interesting choice for a horror movie, because for a lot of horror movies, they rely very heavily on the score to set the mood. But in this case, like, the lack of the score sets a completely different mood that I'm not sure I noticed the first few times watching. I'm not sure I noticed there wasn't a score the first time watching. Not that I was even looking out for it, but it's just, it's what, like, you always expect a good creepy score, at least some sort of, like, suspenseful music, something. But this is almost like, um, uh, I mean, even a documentary would add music to add tension. But this one, it, it just leaves you hanging uh, in, in a very strange and very effective way. Like, I can't even really explain it, why I think it actually works better without, uh, and obviously, you know, the, the, the filmmaker felt the same. Uh, but I can't really explain why, because it's, so, it's such a strange choice. You know, if you were to make a movie and then find out there's just no score to it, it's just yeah, it's so weird. It's, again, especially for a horror movie just to set up these scenes, but it's just it's just not there. Um, it, the movie just leaves you hanging on, on all of these different, very effective ways, whether it be the off-kilter dream sequence, um, just the strange way it will linger on certain scenes. And again, like the complete lack of any, like all of the atmosphere is all in the camera work or in your mind for that matter. It's, it's, it's amazing. And the soundtrack that isn't music, like crinkling noises, you just kind of hear off screen. Right. You know, just kind of these unsettling noises that could be something or could be nothing. Right, right. It's like it's it gives you the feeling of being alone in a in, in you know, it just it gives you a feeling of sort of like being alone or at least you think you're alone. And it's just incredibly quiet. So you can hear every every little noise and let your mind wander. So. Towards the beginning of the movie, we see Father Dyer and Detective Kinderman going to see a movie. They're going to see the wonder. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Dyer mentions he'd seen it 37 times to um, 
his uh, superior in the priesthood. I'm you know, not really sure how that works, but whatever. Um, I just like how when he asks the, the guy, like, oh, it's a, I've seen uh, It's a Wonderful Life 37 times. Do you have a favorite movie? And he just kind of says, The Fly. I just love that. Yeah. You, know, just like, you know, here's this this priest and his or Monsignor, and his favorite movie happens to be The Fly. It's just, yeah, like he has an immediate, re- you know, it doesn't even, re- it's just The Fly. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So when they get to the theater, there's a lot of just dialogue and banter that doesn't have anything to do with the movie, but it immediately builds these characters and makes them real people. Yes. Like as Kinderman's a, a little, there's late, an immediate sympathy for him. There's immediate, like a, a recognizer, you know, camaraderie there. That's, that's just, that just feels genuine. Yeah. As they're heading into the theater, Kinderman is talking to Father Dyer and he, saw, and he notices that Dyer is no longer next to him. And he looks back and Father Dyer is at the concession stand. And uh, Kinderman's like, but, but we're going to be late for the opening of the movie. And Dyer gives this little story about, well, I need lemon drops. You know, after talking to, you know, giving confession to college students for, you know, years. You know, I could smell the marijuana on their breath and the lemon drops on the breath. And between the two of them, I got addicted. So I need I need my lemon drops to go in to see the movie. And then and it's Kinderman's the fault that they're going to be late for the show. Yeah. And then after the movie, there's this great little story that Kinderman tells uh, Dyer about like, he doesn't want to go home because of the cart. Oh, that is my favorite. I completely forgot that whole that whole monologue existed in this movie, but as soon as he started talking about it, it came flooding back. It's one of my favorite bits of dialogue of the it entire is, movie. It has nothing to do with anything, but it's no, just but George C. Scott being brilliant, telling this really amusing story. It's an amusing slice of life story about, you know, his mother-in-law and she wants to, to, you know, cook a t- t- carp for dinner. And, you know, George C. Scott has nothing against it. It's a tasty it's fish. It's a tasty I, fish. I, I like nothing it, against but... it. You know, I, I'm not going to spoil it here if you, you don't know it. And if you do know it, you, you know what we're talking about. But it's just a fun little, you know, character quirk that, that's added to the movie. What what makes that story so well, too, is like you can tell throughout the whole movie, there's this whole, you know, you can just feel the weight that uh, George C. Scott is feeling, right? And it comes out just a little bit in the story, like because you can just feel how annoyed he is about the situation as he's telling the story. <laughs> like and, you're expecting him to snap almost, like he's just he's really just holding it back. It's like this is really what's bothering me. Um, and it sounds so natural. It doesn't yeah. sound rehearsed, right? It sounds genuinely like a friend. every single year. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like something you might overhear at a restaurant if you're listening to somebody over at the other table, right. just a friend telling a friend a story. Yeah. You know, it comes off very naturally. Right. It's, like, uh, it's the ability of George C. Scott to just act. He sells it. Yeah, he sells this like just nothing little story about the carp. Um, Flanders gives his little chuckle at his, his extremely well done chuckle at the end. Yeah, it's a great it's a great little slice of movie. Now, while this is going on, um, Kinderman is finding himself investigating a series of murders that, again, this movie just it it takes its time telling the story, but it takes its time brilliantly. He's trying to put together. You can tell he's putting something together like, you know, there's the murder of a small boy. Well, not a small boy, a young boy. Yeah. Um, 15 or so. Yeah. a Catholic priest is murdered in his confessional, which is a, you don't even see the murder. No. 
but it is still a terrifying so scene yeah. the way it plays out. And both the murders you can tell are connected. And again, you're seeing brilliant police work. Like he says, make sure you dust the inside of the confessional for fingerprints. And one of the other detectives is like, what's for? Well, only, you know, only the priest touches, you know, that side. But Kinderman knows what he's doing. Right. And, and it pays off. He knows these murders are connected, but what's really, you can see he knows something that the audience isn't being told yet, and it's something big. We get a little, n- nice little shot of, um, you know, Kinderman's home life, his, his yeah. loving wife, the mother-in-law, the mother-in-law. Yeah. Who, is, who is great. I love her, she too. Yeah. She doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to do, but she kind of plays that typical little mother-in-law, but without at, being... At just the right level. Yeah, right. It's just the right level of believability where she's just like she's not she's not like a demon, right? But no, she's just she's just snarky enough that you can fill in the blanks. Yes, I don't really like you. I know you don't right. really like me, but you know what? You're married to my daughter, and you know we're family, so we're gonna be just fine, right? As, as well as his um, college age daughter, yeah, um, who's who's a ballerina and a dancer, which. Kinderman should have followed some clues given to him about that a little bit better. But, you know, whatever. Then we get the key dream sequence of the movie that is filled with cameos. Yes. We get Fabio, as you said. Patrick Ewing, as you said. Um, a pre-fame Samuel L. Jackson is, yeah, over- is in there. Yeah, he's the, he's the one, uh, for those who, who don't know if you've seen the movie or not, or when you see the movie, and hopefully you do if you haven't, he's the um, he's, he's the one with like the headphones on holding a cane, right? Yes. Yeah, he's, his voice is overdubbed, so it's very easy to miss. And he's got like uh, a beard, so if you don't recognize him, don't feel bad. I, I, don't, I, I don't think I noticed it until someone pointed it out to me. Within the dream sequence, he meets the boy who's been killed. And it's kind of weird in the way the exchange is. But again, it's a dream. Dreams are weird. But the kid comes running up to his, hey, Lieutenant Kinderman, how you doing? He's like, oh, how you doing? I'm so sorry you were murdered. Yeah, his head's all stitched on. It's 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 pretty gruesome. And that leads to the clue of when he sees Father Dyer in his dream. And Father Dyer is sitting in front of the angel of death with his head stitched on. Kinderman says to him. Gee, I don't know whether I'm dreaming this or you are. And Father Dyer answers, no, Bill, I'm not dreaming. And then he's awakened by a phone call and he's informed that Father Dyer has been murdered. And, and it was previously established Father Dyer was in the hospital. They, he'd visit him and, uh, you know, they were having some tests. And again, another great little scene about his brother. Scene between, between two guys you know are friends because of right. the way they talk to each other. Right. Right. Because he's he mentioned something along the lines of because he's, you know, Dyer's in there for tests or something. And um, uh, Kinder, you know, George C. Scott is basically like, you know, your brother had these symptoms or something along those lines. Um, no, no. Or, like, yeah, he's like, you know, he's, he's he's Dyer's in the bed. And he's basically saying, you don't have to worry about it. We're just running, yeah. running some tests. And he's like, you know, the father Dyer says, well, don't worry, my brother had these system s- symptoms. And George C. Scott answers, your brother died at 30. And Father Dyer's like, yeah, but he died in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah, their banter is just, is just great. All I, the while, Dyer is lighting up a cigarette and smoking. Yes. And 
I got to assume this was really towards the end of when you would be allowed to smoke in a hospital. Yeah, yeah. You figure this is 89, you know, filmed in 89 or so. Um, but it's not a period piece. So, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a lot of, lot of just, like, smoking in the hospital in this. Because um, there's Scott, Scott Wilson. Um, uh, most might remember. Well, he's in a lot of movies. But you might know him from um, Walking Dead probably most recently. Um, as he's just puffing that cigarette, walking, you know, walking uh, Kinderman through later. It's 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 striking. It's striking oh, yeah. in 2023. While Ed Flanders is smoking more casually, yeah. uh, uh, Dr. Temple is smoking like he needs that cigarette to live. Yes, yes. Same smoking, in fact, because yes. there's even this great scene where, and I'm going to tell you right now, uh, Scott Wilson as Dr. Temple is my Whip Bissell Award winner. Um, I was very, le- very heavily leaning towards him as well. I mean, I gotta go with, I gotta go with Brad Dorif, right? But well, um, let me say this: Brad Dorif has the standout performance of the film. Sure, but for me, he's so important to the movie, and so brilliant in the role he he kind of overqualifies for the whip pistol awards that's why i gotta give it to, to scott wilson i had the same thought too i also kind of wanted to give it to um nancy fish who's kind of like the crotchety but otherwise the, nice you know nerd, yes you know the one who's just had enough of like everything well she um, even admits at one point that no i'm a bitch yes, you know and yes. i know it but you know what i'm damn good at my job and i take care of my patients yes um, but yeah, like Scott Wilson's performance is great in this because it's, it's what's interesting about his performance too, is you don't really understand it until the end. You don't really understand like, cause you, when you're watching him, it's just like, you know, he's acting interesting, but it's like, you, you just figure, okay, well, it's like a movie choice or something. And then it's, you finally do. And, and I guess, you know, we'll get to it. Right. But you've, um, when you finally realize what the deal is with him, it all sinks in. On a, on a rewatch. That's why I'm with you. Well, like it, it deserves a rewatch for sure. This, this, I would say rewatches of this movie are almost required. Yes. Like even to the point of if you just watch Exorcist, watch it again, like almost immediately. Maybe you don't yeah. want to watch it, you know, twice in a row, but definitely watch it again soon. Taking that knowledge you have, and you are going to discover so much more as you rewatch this movie. Well, well, the best move, if it's at all possible, is if you know if you have a group of friends who are into horror movies, and you know if you're the first one to see this, watch it and then watch it immediately with them. <laughs> you yes, know, that, uh, get them to watch it. You can it, watch their reactions, and you are going to pick up on things you may have not picked up before. Yeah, like uh, you know, going back to the you know the first appearance of Scott Wilson, there's the there's the scene. You know, he's holding that cigarette like he's like a Nazi interrogator or something, or like you're saying, like he need like he lives with it, you know, like he he can't exist without it. Um, when uh, one of the patients like walks up and you hear, I I don't think I've I mean of all the times I've seen this movie, I don't think I noticed it, uh, but you did like that weird sort of growl that happens with one of them, and it's like, yeah. oh, is that one possessed or being? But you know. Uh, I should also point out with Scott Wilson, he also appeared in the ninth configuration. So oh, he was in two sequels to The Exorcist, directed by William Peter Blatty. So when uh, George C. Scott returns to the hospital after, you know, Dyer's murder, and he's. And that POV it, shot, that tracking POV shot is, is awesome. 
where yes. everybody's just staring at him and it's so very quiet. Again, I, I think because an, an effective use of non of no soundtrack here. No soundtrack and no verbal communication yes. either. Because they're all looking at this guy who's got to investigate yet another murder connected to the other murders he's investigated and they all know that he is best friends with this man who has just been murdered well well plus it's a it's a great way of conveying not just like not just knowing the impact uh, uh that you know because again they're all friends with kinderman right they, they all know what just happened and they're all you know silent and respectful for kinderman but also it really helps set up the impact of what it is they just found because it's more than well, just finding a body, and they have no idea what to deal with, what what, what to even say about it. And that's the feel, like you immediately get that sort of feeling of like, oh, they're also dead silent because they don't even know how to process this quite yet. The, each murder they discover and they talk about as they continue the investigation and get the coroner reports, they're like more horrible, disturbing details. More elaborate, yeah. And more elaborate, like when they at first just assumed because there were decapitations in all three murders. But then they're discovering, like, it wasn't the decapitation that murdered him. You know, they were injected with a drug that kept him awake and aware, but unable to move and scream or react as they were being horribly murdered. And they, it, and they leave that all up to your imagination to, to, yes. to figure that out. It's It's... Uh, it may sound like cheap, especially in today's day and age of, you know, digital effects being rel relatively available. But uh, I don't know. It, it works for me. I don't need and to see it. As he enters the room, you know, the two detectives in there both, you know, quietly let him examine. And you notice that he examines each hand of the the body. And then he looks and next to the bed are all these jars. And he's asked one of the detectives. Perfectly, you know, perfect, all perfectly level, all perfectly arranged. Yeah. There's there's barely any blood in the room in a murder where that where there was somebody decapitated. And drained entirely of their blood. And that's where, and like, what's in those jars? It's like Father Dyer's blood, his, his entire blood supply. And you look at it, it's like, and they're like, not a single drop was spilled. Right. There's 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 no blood anywhere in in the other than the writing on the wall. Right. And up above the bed that was uh, you know protected by you know to protect help protect the evidence. When Kinderman pulls that back, he sees written on the wall in Father Dyer's blood. It's a wonderful life, misspelled. Yes. Two L's at the end of wonderful. And I'll be honest, the first dozen times I watched the movie, even though he says that I'm such a terrible speller, I didn't really. Every time I see it for the first time, I forget that that's not how you spell wonderful. Well, it's just the same with me. Like, I don't I don't pick up on the extra L either. Um, this is when, you know, as he closed, he starts telling like, I want the hospital closed down. Nobody allowed in and out except for emergencies. I want everybody interviewed. And this brings, you know, the director of the hospital, like, you know, you can't be doing this. And they start having this, this shouting argument in, in, well, as the, you know, hospital director's like, do you understand, you know, what you're putting me through? You know, we got patients trying to get better and I got police running around. I understand you're trying to investigate a murder and he's going the, off the, you know, the beaches stay open. You know? Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, there's another detective on the phone trying to get, you know, lab reports and other things done. And, you know, it's like, this is what we're told. This is what we're doing. And 
Kinderman is just standing there quietly, but you can tell he's just holding back everything. And then finally he stops and starts telling, like, explaining the story. And he starts talking about the Gemini killer. Has anybody heard of the Gemini killer? And of course, everybody says, of course he did. He, he died in the electric chair 15 years ago. And Kinderman's like, that's right. But what you don't know, and what nobody knew but the detectives who were investigating is, because in the papers it was reported that he would cut off the finger, of the, the, the middle finger of the left hand. And then he would carve the, the sign of the Zodiac, of the Gemini, into the back of his victim. But those were lies. He would cut off the index finger of the right hand. And then in the left hand, he would carve the Zodiac symbol. Only On the, the Richmond Police Department knew this. And the reason why we did that, it was to help eliminate all the crackpots who were coming in every day confessing that I'm the Jeremiah killer. Well, what did you do? Well, first I would, you know, cut off their finger and then I would carve my sign into their back. And then we knew, okay, this guy's a liar. Get him out of here. But in the cases of these three murders, Everything is exact to the Gemini killer. Right. So if it's a copycat, how does this copycat know how the Gemini killer actually, his actual modus operandi? And now we've got an even deeper mystery involved. And as Kinderman, and this is where we first, again, meet, you know, Dr. Temple played by Scott Wilson and he's, he's holding the cigarette, you know, like, you know, it's almost a ward against evil. And right. if I put this down, I'm going to die. Right. He holds it like few people hold cigarettes. Like, I mean, I've seen this before, but it's usually like some sort of villain during an interrogation or like a, um, some sort of like a, um, a high society, you know, like he should have a monocle or something. It's very distinctive. Eventually, they get a one single fingerprint back from the jars holding Father Dyer's blood. And the fingerprint leads them to the hospital's psych ward. So Kinderman is gone, and, and Dr. Temple, who is obviously in charge of that ward, ward is, is, is taking him along, you know, introducing him to all the different people on the unit. He goes, you know, most of these people are harmless. They're, a lot of them are catatonic or they're just confused about where they are and, you know, the fingerprint, you know, belongs to that elderly lady who is seemingly completely out of it in that chair over there. Right. It's mostly like uh, either senile or dementia patients or something. That they're yeah. yeah. So he goes, you know, there's your girl and, you know, Kinderman goes over to talk to her very gently and she's like, are you, are you here to fix my radio? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm the radio repairman. Well, here, fix my radio. And she go, he goes, all right, I'll, I'll fix that. And she goes, I just knew you weren't the radio repairman. That's not a radio. That's the telephone. Yeah. You know, like she was. And he realizes, like, this woman is harmless. Yes. She couldn't have killed Father Di Despite the fact that her fingerprint is at the crime scene, she couldn't possibly have had anything to do with it. And as he continues to investigate, he goes through the hospital trying to figure out, like, you know, what could have been used to do a decapitation, you know, what kind of strength. And one of the, I don't know whether it's a coroner or a surgeon, I think it's the coroner, uh, 
who's showing him all the utensils, like, well, yeah, this could have uh, done with it. Like, well, how strong would you have to be to use these shears, uh, essentially, to decapitate somebody? It's like, you wouldn't have to do it, be very strong at all. The, the It's designed so that it's it will, you know, use its own... Um, I guess springs and and levers. Yeah, it's to, like this g- giant spring-loaded, like curved shears. Yes, yeah. and and as Kinderman picks them up, he goes, "Whoa, it takes strength just to open it." And the guy says, "Oh, well, let me see." This like, "Oh, yeah, well, they're new. They're just a little stiff. They'll loosen up." And Kinderman then sees there's even a a, a label on. He's like, "What's that label? Oh, shipping label." So he's like, "So these are new," and they're like, "Yeah, what happened to the old ones?" And then it's like, obviously, the old ones are missing because they were the murder weapon. But who knows where they are? Now, as the movie progresses, now he goes back to the psych ward and he sees, you know, obviously there's a wing and he asks Dr. Temple, like, well, what's in there? He's like, well, that's the disturbed ward. And that's where people are locked in and it, it's it's very secure there's a guy it's your on padded the room situation yeah and and to get in you have to get past the guard you have to be visually identified by the nurse on duty to be allowed in and then to get out you have to type in a code to get out and the code changes daily so nobody's getting in and out of there without being noticed right or at least without but help as he's walking exactly or at least without help. And as he's walking, he hears somebody call, or he thinks he hears somebody call his name. And just before he's about to go in and check, he gets, you know, another call and, and he leaves. So later, again, as he's investigating, Dr. Temple tells the story about the man in that room and how 15 years ago he was brought in completely catatonic by the police who found him just wandering around and and brought him in. And for most of the intervening 15 years, he's basically sat there in a catatonic state until recently at about the same time as the murders began, he started to seem to become aware and come out of it. And when Kinderman goes in there to see him, he sees Father Damien Karras, the man who died 15 years ago, freeing young Reagan, the possessed girl of the exorcist, who took the demon into himself and then committed suicide by throwing himself out the window down the stairs to his death to take the demon out with him. This, this death was witnessed not only by Lieutenant Kinderman, but also by Father Dyer. And as the investigation continues, he starts making connections to the previous victims as well to the exorcist case involving uh, Reagan McNeil. What continues to happen and and through it, he, he, he 
this I should also that this movie has one of the greatest jump scares. Oh yeah, in cinema history. Yeah, it's also like Every... from a time where jump scares weren't that overused. Oh no, jump scares were even overused by this point. But you it's think so? Brilliantly used. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. usually it's a black cat or something, I suppose. But right. yeah, like to me, I don't, I don't think they were quite as abused as they and were by this point. Even when you know it's coming, sure, it's scary. Well, because it's so, it's so well played. Because you can forget, like you can be like, oh, is this the part? I don't know. Like when we were watching it, when we were watching it again, I was just, I'm pretty sure this is the part. But they wait and wait and wait um, that you almost give up uh, before it happens, and it just catches you off guard like that. It's, it's so awesome. So as the investigation continues. Oh, and another thing, not technically a jump scare, but this is something that just happens and it's entirely left up to you to figure out what the hell is going on. But but in the scene just before uh, Scott Wilson is talking about the um, uh, the, the the guy in the, in the room, um, Kinderman goes to like the church of the knife wielding Joker, I guess. Yes. That church <laughs> where there's a, a statue has been vandalized. Yeah. Oh, is that what that was? Yes. Okay. Because <laughs> that's terrifying. That that statue out of nowhere is 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 something else. I guess I I guess I missed that part, but I always wondered what that was about. Well, I mean, as like I said, as as he investigate continues the investigation, he goes to the church. You know, he goes to see and talk to patient X, and this is where you get to see the brilliant acting. Not only of Jason Miller reprising his role of Doc, uh, of Father Damien Karras, but of Brad Dorif. Oh, he's because, phenomenal in this. As we will find out, as Father Karras was dying on the bot at the bottom of those steps, the Gemini killer had been executed in the electric chair. And through a deal with the devil, was allowed to possess the body of Father Karras as punishment for his interference and doing the exorcism. And again, it will switch between Father Karras, uh, uh, the actor Jason Miller sitting there talking to um, George C. Scott, and then when it's the Gemini killer you will see Brad Dorif there. And again, his acting is, he is so chilling. So brilliant. His, his little rants talking about how he goes through the murder and it's, you know, that's showmanship. Yes. It's, it's almost like it's, it's such diabol. He uses such diabolically sound logic, such creepy, disturbing logic. Um, And the whole, you know, Talk about how, and the worst punishment of all for your friend, Father Damien, is he is in here with watching me, it. watching as I rip and tear and murder, and he can do nothing about it. Um, this is also about the time we start to get some of the result of the uh, add-ins, because we get like a new priest out of nowhere, who I don't even think has a name. Uh, Father Morning. Oh, he does have a name, okay. Played by Nicole Williams or Williamson, I, I'm not, I'm, and it might not be pronounced Nicole, but yeah, we we get a little bit. Of, we see him every now and then because yes, he was not part of William Peter Blatt, Blatty's original film. He was forced in by the studio because Blatty's original film 
doesn't have an exorcism. And we're introduced to Father Morning as he had, he had, he had uh, performed exorcism, an exorcism, at least one exorcism previously. He doesn't really interact with Kinderman or any of the other characters until the very end. Um, but also, in Blatty's original version, Jason Miller does not appear at all. You only see Brad Dourif the entire time. So there's so, no connection to Father Karras at all except for Kinderman well, himself. There is, because Kinderman sees him as Father Karras. Okay. But again, this is what would help in, again, in the novel and in, in Blatty's obviously original is since we only see Brad Dourif, there's that a little added ambiguity is, is this Father Damien Karras or is it somebody who believes he's Father Damien Karras? You know, that just adds to it. Where, in, you know, this, the, the final theatrical version, which I get, I actually think is the superior version. I agree. Very rare for me to side with the studio to interfere, but I actually think that on in this particular occasion, the studio was right. If if you're paying, if you're really paying attention to the movie, and if you know it was reshooted to add it, it's pretty obvious. If you're just watching the movie, especially for the first time, you're so engrossed in it, you don't really even notice that that's not even supposed to be there. You don't even really you don't really realize it's added because it's it's tied in at the end very well. But uh, yeah, the priest just kind of like appears and you're like, okay, what's this? <laughs> but there's so much happening. It, it just, it just works. Like I, I would never notice it. I still wouldn't have noticed it if you hadn't pointed it out. Yeah. And well, again, even though Kinderman, even if Kinderman is, is convinced that this guy in the cell is committing the murders, whether he believes them to be father Damien carries or not. Right. How is he getting out and doing it? Right. And when he when he point blanks asks the guy the answer is, oh, I get some help from friends, old old friends. And, and there's also um, I, I can't remember if it's at this point too. Uh, as the Gemini killer, he says something along the lines of, um, "I should thank, or I must thank Doctor Temple for bringing you to me," or something along those lines. Yes. And and it, and and even now, even after watching the movie multiple times, when he says it. Uh, even then, I don't really get what he's saying <laughs> until I realize, oh, he, he meant that literally. Well, that and um, there's the he, he, every he, there's the insistence that he wants Kinderman to tell the press. Yes. That the murders are being committed by the Gemini killer. Right. That's his main driving force um, right now is that he wants, he wants the publicity uh, in part because I mean, he's a killer and that's what he wants, but also like he, he wants to have the world upended by that news. He wants everybody freaking out and, and not understanding it. And he keeps threatening that if Kinderman doesn't do it, he will be punished by an invitation. He keeps saying like, Oh, you are clearly looking for an invitation to the dance. Yes. So, as the movie again progresses, we start to realize that he is possessing the elderly people on the unsecured part of the ward. And through them, committing these murders. So that's how the woman's fingerprints ended up mm. on the jars and how a completely different elderly woman's fingerprint ended up 
in the confessional for the priest murders. And again, Kinderman is like, he, he, he's following these clues and understanding the clues, but also in his pragmatic detective mind is also thinking, how can any of this really be possible? Right. How does it all actually fit? You know, even though I know this is where the clues are leading me, it just doesn't make sense. The movie continues to escalate. And, you know, again, we're leaving a lot out because it, I, I, you know, it's mostly so atmosphere. Again, like it's mostly, mostly atmosphere well, and dialogue, you know, very heavily well, carried by George C. Scott, who's amazing um, until he's in it with, you know, uh, Jason Miller and Brad Dorff who are amazing. Yeah, it's 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 hard to convey it without really seeing it. Well, and not only that, you know, we granted we spoil stuff all the time. We talk about movies that are, are all over 20 years old. So, sure. You know, but again, I don't even think I could do it justice. And I, these are all minor things leading up to the big things. Even like when Kinderman realizes that the the Gemini killer is now possessing an elderly woman disguised as a nurse and is heading to his home. And when he tries to make the call to his home to warn his wife that there's somebody coming, he can't get through. But then it cuts to his house to his wife on the phone with who she believes to be her husband. But we, as the audience know is not when the woman, when, when the elderly woman arrives, the tension ramps up even higher as he is racing back home to protect his family. And, and again, yeah. And again, this is all done, you know, it's just happening. There's, there's, there's no score to bail you out. There's no, uh, what I also like too, about the, um, the way they play the nurse in this case is she doesn't like, she's barely registering the whole time like you can see the sort of like sinister um you can see some like level of that like sinister intent behind their eyes you can tell they're possessed but you also can tell that it's not quite it's it's hard to explain it it, it really is but what i like about it is they don't they don't let you off the hook by having your act like cartoonishly evil or anything like that it's just laid it's just laid out so bare um, which also just makes it so that much more sinister and effective because uh, you're not like entirely sure like is she still possessed right like when you just see her because when he finally shows up and it's a very tense scene as they're bar barreling through traffic and you keep expecting it to cut back to the family to find out what's going on there so you can get a judge of time but they don't give you that you know the just the very next thing you see is him running up to the door you know getting it open and like oh there's the daughter and everything's fine and, but is and it all through the movie, even before that, there are all sorts of red herrings thrown at you. Yes. Is Dr. Temple a part of this? Yes. Is Nurse Allerton a part of this? Are they helping him? Are they unwitting pawns to the Gemini killer? And and, and it just keeps, it keeps throwing these things after you to keep you off balance. And one of the, again, another brilliant little piece of which you think is a nothing scene. There's a scene, you know, prior to all this of Kinderman at home, just looking at his notes and everything, mm -hmm. you know, it's late at night and his daughter just shuffles into the kitchen, grabs a little snack from the fridge, walks up to her and says, good night, daddy. And gives him a little kiss on the forehead. It's just this sweet little slice of life scene that again, adds to the whole horror Later down the road, when you think that 
you know, this this nice, loving family is about to have their world torn apart by a possessed a, a, a woman possessed by a, a serial killer. Well, p- in league with the devil. Well, plus with the way the movie kind of goes, and and with no with no musical cue either way, you have no idea. Which means you're in the same shoes as George C. Scott in this position. Like you have no idea if she's about to turn and like stab you or something. You know, like you have no idea. It's like, is this the beginning of something creepy, or is this just my everyday life? And is this how I have to live for the rest of my life, never not really being sure? Because you don't. Because yes. he almost seems like you could almost read it like he's almost just a little bit scared, or at least concerned. When it's just like for anyone else, it's just, oh, someone came down to get a drink. Right? Well, yeah. So when he thinks this woman is coming to his home to kill his daughter and he comes in with his gun drawn and his wife is all like, at first his daughter doesn't even pay attention. Right. She's looking at her book and like, oh, mom, daddy's home. And the wife is, sees he's got his gun drawn. She's like, what's this? What is this all about? You tell me about this nurse coming over and she comes here and she's like, all confused about what's time for dinner and now George C. Scott is all like disarmed and like I don't know what this is about either I thought boy this is really strange and well horror happens and just when you think the Gemini killer is about to have his revenge the old woman collapses. Something happens, and then it cuts back to the hospital, and you realize Father Morning has arrived, and he is conducting an exorcism, and that interrupts the mur- his murder plans. The exorcism does not go well for Father Morning. It is a graphic, brutally violent scene, very bloody, very gory, uh, it seems again like the, the movie says everything for the end. <laughs> yes, and it seems like the forces of evil are going to win out. Just as now Kinderman arrives, and when first when Kinderman arrives, like you've just seen this horrible scene of the exorcism gone wrong, and then Kinderman arrives, and it seems like everything's normal, and now Kinderman is being the 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 Gemini is doing to Kinderman what he had just done to Father Morning. Um, Father Morning, who at first you think is dead, right. is able to grab his crucifix and he reaches out not to the demon to exorcise him, but he reaches out to Father Karras, who he knows is still in there, and it's telling Father Karras to fight. Karras does. And for he's able to get control for just long enough to, for him to tell Lieutenant Kill, Kinderman to kill me, kill me now, kill me, and kill without hesitation, pulls his trigger and blows Father Car- Father Karras away, killing his friend, but also destroying the demon. And I always appreciate the immediacy and that like they've gone through, you know, with the exorcism attempt and with Kinderman trying to talk his, because he's not an exorcist, so trying to talk his own way through the, uh, you know, dealing with the Gemini killer. Um, I appreciate the fact that they don't 
tack on or try to tack on yet more drama and conflict. Like, no, I can't. Do he just does it. And like, no, I can't kill you. Yeah. You're my friend. He just no, no. he just does it. He, he's just you know, he's got it. This is how it has to be. And, um, you know, because and it works so well because of all like, you know, of all the buildup between at the beginning and the banter between them. And you can see how good close friends they are like him having to have that real, well this is not i'm sorry that was dire anyway not not um no era, but, but but it's like you get it, it, i don't know it works I, I i love that choice i think that's i think that's the way it should have hunt should have gone there is a speech that that kinderman gives to his partner about father K, damian Karras and how they were best friends right and how he loved them right like he so, knows yeah. you, you you can tell by his reaction he immediately knew he would be doing the right thing for him anyway and it would seem that Father Morning dies of his injuries. It's not a hundred percent clear, but it does look like they that there are priests that are probably attending his funeral. Right. I mean, he, he was pretty badly injured. Yeah, he lost like so much of his skin um, and presumably blood. Yeah, yeah, it's an assumption, but I think it's a safe assumption. But really, I have to say that the climax we get in the theatrical cut is much better than the climax we get in Blatty's original vision because in that movie, after the events at his house, and it's not entirely clear how, or maybe it was, I've only seen this other version once, but it goes wrong and Kinderman returns to the hospital and as soon as he walks in the room, he just simply blows away the Gemini killer. It's very anticlimactic. Yeah, like on on paper, um, which which I guess is a is a you know, because uh, it was actually on paper in the book, right? But on on it sounds like an okay, I and and like sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it sounds like an okay way to end the book, uh, in, well, in such it, a way, again, like in such a jarring sort of way. But I don't think it would have paid off this movie as well. But it, but it also adds to the ambiguity about whether or not yeah. this was really Father Karras or a possession or whatever. Like I don't, I don't hate the idea. Like I get where they're trying. I, I get the intent there, but I don't think it plays off as well in this movie. Like I don't think it would have. I don't know if the movie. I mean, it still would be a very good movie, I guess. I just don't know. I don't know. I, I'm with you. I, I think the reshoots are the better choice. Um, I think it makes for not just a le- you know a much more a, a much better ending, you know, far less anticlimactic one. But it's done really well. Like if I felt like I had problems with the exorcism scene or didn't think it worked or if it felt forced, if it wasn't great, then maybe. But it, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so it's well done. I can't, well I can't done. have it any other way. There are a few things I do think Blatty's cut does do better. Like it's it, it's better at closing, you know, the because one of the big it's not really a plot hole because they do kind of cover it, but it's like, all right, if this is Father Damien Karras who's been sitting in this room for the past fifteen years, how come nobody ever noticed, you know, he wasn't in the casket? You know. Well and and, the- and they kinda they kind of go over it in, in one of Brad Dourif's speech about... Yeah, it's like a throwaway line about how, you know, the look on their face when they saw me come out of the slab. Yes. Blatty's Cut has a scene that really should be reinserted into the movie that much better um, explains how that could have happened 
and what happened and whose body was buried as Father Damien Caps. Is it just and like a dialogue or is it is there is there a flashback? It's, like it's, filmed? it's dialogue between um um uh George C. Scott and Harry Carey Jr. Oh wow, okay. And then there's even a scene that was originally you still see a shot in the theatrical cut the shot is of Kinderman and his partner at Father Karras's grave. But as seen in the movie, it's them being at Karras's basically his reburial. Okay. In the original movie, that scene was them exhuming the coffin to find out who was really in there. Okay. Okay. And, and then it, again, it's better explained as to how this all, you know, how nobody noticed that Father Karras wasn't, you know, dead and buried. So how, how does the book explain it? It's basically uh, when Father Karras was, you know, after he died and he was put in his coffin and being prepared for burial, there was a priest who was left with them alone with the body because, you know, what's going to happen? He's just there to watch the body. But he was a priest who had continually felt he was, he didn't like well, being a priest anyways, and he was constantly talking about how, you know, I guess he, it was usually his duty to be left to sit vigil vigil with any other priest who had, you know, who had passed away. And he didn't like that. So he's the one that when he sees Father Damien come back to life, dies of a heart attack, and then the Gemini killer puts him in the coffin and closes that up. And he's the one buried as Father Damien Karras. And his disappearance didn't go unnoticed, but the the uh, order basically assumed that, oh, he made good his threat that he was going to quit and leave the order. Gotcha. So nobody went looking for him because they weren't surprised when he went missing. Gotcha. Okay. Um. Yeah, so th- it, it's much better explained. I really would like to see that's one of the scenes I would like to see in a in another you know third cut of this movie. I, I you know not only do I highly recommend this movie, I highly recommend getting the Shout Factory release that includes both the theatrical cut and the other cut of the movie because again. Visually, some of those scenes in Blad in in what they call the director's cut are awful. They don't look good. It's it's because they were know, never they were never like color corrected or finished or well, post processed or whatever you're saying. Not, I, not they because they were bad. Been, they were they, just like you know. Well, I guess they were found, you know, poorly stored. Anyways, right. no, I just so want to clarify that you're saying it, it's it's awful, not because of any sort of direct, you know, any, no, any no, sort no. of movie yeah, it's reason. Just, it's just you know, it's it's obviously cut back in footage from a poor source. And I mean, you go from this crystal clear, Blu-ray, you know, yeah. Blu-ray image to some of these, you know, and and again, it, it's not perfectly edited either because they're using the materials they have to use. But I really feel it is well worth seeing just to appreciate what Blatty originally wanted us to see. So it's not quite like um, it's not quite like Halloween six, the producer's cut, which right. is rough to watch f- for the same reason. Like it's it's, you know, some of the sources aren't great and don't fit well, you know, 
visually with the rest of the movie. Like it's very roughly put in, but the narrative is a lot better. But the difference with Halloween six, though, is like, it fixes the movie. Like it fixes a pretty broken movie. Whereas this, it's a good movie in its own right with the reshoots or from what you're saying, even without them, just maybe rougher to watch. It does tell a different story and a different point of view. Does it really? Okay. And even more importantly, you get more Brad Dorif. Oh, right on. Because so there's more scenes, dialogue with him, or more, more. Yeah, uh, well, because scenes that Jason Miller, you know, and dialogue Jason oh. Miller gives, because Jason Miller does not appear in that cut at all. Right. So anything okay. he had to say is delivered and performed by Brad Dourif. Is it the same lines? It's the same lines. Gotcha. Okay. So. You know, if you, you if you're a fan of The Exorcist Three and you've never seen it, I think you will do yourself a favor. Even if you're like me, you don't prefer it. You're going to get something out of it. Um, you're going to get, like I said, scenes that will improve your understanding of certain events. But again, like I said, it, it's it's kind of different. Gotcha. I, I I do recommend it. Now to go back. Because I actually, it's again one of these reasons I say this movie improves on repeat viewing. When Lieutenant Kinderman is first being introduced to the patients in in the the senile ward, I, I guess is a way. A woman comes up to Kinderman and in a very gravelly yeah. voice says to him, "Are you my son?" And, you know, him trying to be nice and polite is like, well, I would be very happy to think so. And she answers, you're not my son. And as she walks away, there is a disturbing roar in the soundtrack that doesn't really make any sense. Because at this point, if you're watching it for the first time, it doesn't really you, mean anything. Yeah, you yeah, might not even you notice don't it. know it's the elderly people being possessed. But on a repeat viewing, you look at that and you're like, oh, my God. Was that woman who just talked to him with that voice and that sound cue, was she possessed? Was that the Gemini killer already screwing with Kinderman right there in front of us? I say yes. I I think so, too. It explains her. Not only does it explain her strange kind of almost Mercedes McCambridge voice from the original Exorcist type voice from the original Exorcist. It explains the strange roar that isn't really acknowledged by either of the two characters in this film no and depending on like depending on your volume level or you know uh, you might not even notice it (laughs) you know um it's it's subtly done i and and again i I wonder if maybe because this was one of the first times i don't often watch movies with headphones on so i have these really nice stereo headphones on so it was more obvious but you you got to check out this movie, and again, I, I I I when you get to that scene, you know, decide for yourself: is that what's going on, or you know, is it a, just another something Blatty's throwing at you? This is this is a ma- as close to a horror masterpiece as you got from this time period, really, you know, especially supernatural horror, and. With all the other stuff that has been done around The Exorcist, like the the derided heretic, The Exorcist to the heretic, and then the 
fourth movie, which was a prequel that has, again, two entirely different cuts out there. Neither one of them very good. The fact that this movie is so damn good is astounding. It really is. But again, you know, because it was based on the novel by William Peter Bradley, directed by and written for the screen by him, even with the studio interference, his desire to get this across resulted in just it's just an excellent, excellent movie. Oh, absolutely. And again, even if you're kind of not, well, I mean, I, I guess if you're not into like a supernatural style horror, you probably won't be able to get into this, but. I doubt it'll have the same impact anyway. You might, it but I doubt it'll have the same impact. On the same level as, say, like seven. Yes. Because this is. That was going to be one of my recommendations. De- yeah. This is a detective movie about trying to track down a serial killer. So it does work on that level as well. You may not like the answers to right. those questions, but I, again, that's a blatty thing. You the, may not like the answers, but you don't. You don't even have to accept the answers if you don't want to. This is what it is. Take from it what you will. Right, like it, you know, depending on your beliefs and your levels of squeamishness. Um, like there's not a lot. Like there's really no gore in this movie, except for maybe well, at the very end where the yeah. priest is trying to peel himself off the ceiling. But even then, that's relatively restrained compared to modern times. Like this could be, not even necessarily a gateway horror, but I could be. I could see this as like a horror movie that even horror fans aren't necessarily that. This, that or I should say, a horror movie for people who aren't even necessarily horror fans. Sort of like The Exorcist was. The descriptions of the murders are very unsettling too. Oh man. But this is like it. This is an unsettling movie. It's almost like Blatty puts you in a rocking chair and he's rocking it, but not in an even, he's constantly changing the pace he's rocking. Yeah. You know, he, he never wants you to relax. He never wants you to get comfortable. He wants you on edge. He wants you rocking back and forth and unable to balance yourself at any point so you don't know what's going to happen next, even when you know what's going to happen next. You can never be sure. Hey, like I said, even after repeated viewings, I'm finding new things, and I'm still never sure about what everything means and what everything is going on. It, it's just, again, it's a brilliant movie. It is a great film, yeah. Yeah, it's a hard, it is a horror masterpiece. And only, right. only one year removed from um, Silence of the Lambs, which would win an Academy Award. Yes. And, and in many ways... And I love of... Silence of the Lambs. I think this is a better movie, though. And I, I like Silence of the Lambs a lot. I think it's a great movie. But I, I, I think I actually like this one even more. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, you know, again, Blatty did an amazing job but in some ways, I wonder, like, what could have, like, somebody like David Fincher or um, even William Friedkin coming back to do it? You sure, know? sure. Well, because it's like character-driven horror is not that common anymore. You know, uh, it back, you know, back when when effects were far more expensive, uh, I, I suppose you had to, and that's that's one of the things that makes this movie stand out. It's 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 so incredibly well acted, so 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 incredibly well, you know, displayed. Um, I think it, you know, I, I think it could have been uh, considered if it came out a little bit later. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe. But, you know, we know the Academy doesn't like. But, you know, I don't really, even at this point. Well, I mean, it's so, every bit as disturbing as Silence of the Lambs is. I, I'm so cynical about the Academy. It's, it's... Oh, and rightfully so. Like, I don't really care about the Oscars either. I just I just like to wonder, like, you know, where, where, where how, how things have changed. Like, where would this movie sit now? Because I think it's... I think this is a movie where if you've seen it, you like it. Or at least, you know, if you're a horror fan anyway. Like, obviously, if you're not a horror fan, it's probably not going to change your mind. But um. Uh, I, I I don't know I don't know too many people have seen it and don't just love it. No, no. But I, it, just to go back to my opinion of the Academy, it's funny how much oh they can never get it right. But then when they do pick a movie, I agree with. Suddenly I'm like, see, see, it is a great movie. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Matt, you either agree with the Academy or you don't. You can't just pick it. <laughs> I don't agree with the Academy. Well, it's, you know, to me, my, my view on, on the meaning of an Oscar, um, you know, once I finally realized how it's actually done, how it gets voted, it's like, it's, it's both been, it's, it's, it's been changed, I guess, you know, for the better and for the worse. It, it, it means less to me now, but it still means something. Like, it's still cool to know that, you know, a, a given movie was recognized, but at the same time, you, you, once you realize how it all kind of works, it's just like, all right. Just whether it has whether it could be nominated for an Oscar or not does really have not that much to do with the quality of the film. And you know, again, it's all a matter of opinion anyway. For sure, so, yeah. You know, my opinion, their opinion. You know, but but also it's like I guess what I'm getting at is it's it's the opinion of insiders, which is distinctly right. different from the opinion of the audience. And it took me a long time to really realize that. Like it's insiders giving award to other insiders, which is different. It's and, distinctly and... different. Not bad, but distinctly different. <laughs> As we've discovered while doing this this podcast, even we w- returning to movies we've seen dozens of times and love, we'll see them in a different way when we're trying to prepare for this podcast. We'll absolutely you know, see a little little different things. Well, because it's one thing when you're trying to see a movie for your own entertainment, and then it's another thing when you're trying to see the movie to give other people reasons to see it. Yes, or you know, you give have them to be a reason. Specific. You can't just be like, "Oh, it's awesome." Yeah. Or, or, or give them a reason to listen. Right. All right. So anything else to say about the movie itself? No. I mean, it's easily one of my favorites. Um, uh, certainly one of my favorite horror movies. Probably one of my favorite movies, period. It's definitely or, and, and, on the high ten. list anyway. Yeah. Definitely in my top ten. Um, all right. So recommendations. Uh, well, seven was going to be one of my recommendations. Um, another one, um, not supernatural technically, but The Hidden, uh, yeah. which is a fun movie. I think we'll eventually get to. But uh, there, you know, there are some there are some parallels in theme, I guess, and that it's you know it's a cop movie. Uh, it's about a body hopping alien, but um, it's just a great <laughs> great movie. And then another one, just because I'm not sure when else I'll be able to talk about it, um, but it came to mind. Uh, this one is more of a fun feel, but um, Friday the Thirteenth Part Nine: Jason Goes to Hell, uh, which is one of my one of the one of that one of my more favorites of that franchise. Um, and in this one, it's Jason kind of body hopping, uh, which it's just they do such an interesting thing with the Jason character because, like, you you can tell by the time they got to the ninth movie and like after New York, they were trying to figure out like, okay, what could we really do? You know, can well, we just can we can we just make another Friday the Thirteenth, or are we going to do something here? And I really love what they did. I think Friday the Thirteenth Part Nine is an excellent movie. As, as do I. I really enjoy it as well. But it's also important to remember too that Nine was 
a new studio had taken over the franchise. That's right. Yeah, I guess they had to go to a different direction. Well, they didn't have to, but it was their plan. You right. Know? Um, they really felt, you know, it went from Paramount to New Line, and New Line felt like, well, Paramount has done everything you can do with what, you know, the franchise has already given us. Let's try something new. And Sean Cunningham, the creator, well, co-creator of the Friday the 13th franchise, was involved in that movie, and it was one of oh, his, really? his decisions to let's do something different, let's do something outside of, you know, the guy in the hockey mask stalking and slashing. Yeah, it's it's if you haven't seen part nine, see it. It's it's great. Um uh if you've seen any of them or you probably know what Friday the thirteenth is by now, like it, it kind of stands on its own. because uh, I think you know what the other Friday the third which I enjoy by the way, but I think you know what those movies are about. But check out part nine if you never have. If it seems too silly, if it seems almost like, you know, it's it would have seemed um, coming out with an Exorcist three in 1990 was, oh, man, a third like, you know, thirds are never good. Um, or, you know, obviously that depends on your on your taste or whatever. But uh, again, this is this is at a time where franchises were not like now everything's a franchise. Right. Um, back then, by the time you get to a third of something, it it didn't necessarily signify a great film. Because we're talking like, you know, Godfather 3, Jaws 3, um, depending on how you feel about it, Superman 3, which I liked, by the way, for the record. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's it is what, what, sequels are what they are. Right, right. And it, I, I find that because, I mean, look at Halloween 3. Yes, Halloween 3. But I, but, but also, it depend, depending on how you look at it, you either hated it at the time, <laughs> you know. I think a lot of it has to do with the attitude of the filmmakers who are approaching the material. Absolutely. Because a lot of times when it's a sequel, the attitude of the filmmakers are like, oh, we're just doing a sequel. Let's just right. grind this out. Right. You know, that's the studio's attitude. And that sometimes that becomes the filmmakers. Attitude. Right. This was clearly not made as a cash grab. This was clearly made as a project well, that the director really wanted to do. I- I'm sure it was made as a cash grab by the studio, but the director. Oh, sure. And, and yeah. So, all right, so my recommendation and uh, the thing I think is the most similar to this movie is, you know, the Denzel Washington movie, Fallen. Okay, yep. It's again, a detective trying to figure out, you know, a serial killer who should be dead and is, you know, hopping from body to body. Very disturbing film, uh, very, very dark and very downbeat. I haven't um, seen that in a while. I remember liking it. Is that uh, is that uh, is that Com Fury as the killer in the beginning? I'm trying to remember. I think it may have been. It's but... either him or someone who looks like him. Yeah, someone I've confused with him. I, you know, Denzel Washington and John Goodman are the ones you know I think of as as being the, the stars of that film. And then um, it has nothing really. You know, it's it's not about. Well, actually, another good possession movie is the uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose, um, and you got the you know the recent you know Conjuring movies and 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 all that. If, if you're insidious, in, yep. to, to, yeah. But I want to recommend, and it's it's an Argentinian film. Oh well, okay. Called Terrified. Oh, you've talked and about this before. Okay. It is just an excellent disturbing supernatural events film uh, i don't want to s- talk about it any more than that i just highly re- recommend if i know it was a shutter well 
it's an Argentinian film, and uh, the the channel Shutter is kind of the one that brought it to you know the North American audiences. Distributed, I, right? Yeah, yeah. You can find it on Blu-ray and DVD. It is well worth your your time. All right. So, anything else? Uh, no, I mean, I have a Magnificent Seven. All right, so time for The Magnificent Seven Degrees, where we connect this movie to my favorite film, The Magnificent Seven, and Seven Steps or Less. Go. All right, so Scott Wilson was in Young Guns 2 as uh, Lou Wallace uh, the same year, actually, and um, that had uh, James Coburn as John Chisholm. All right, well done. I am going to go with Ed Flanders. Howdy doodly. Ed Flanders was in another one of our favorite horror films, um, the miniseries Salem's Lot, which we've covered. He is killed by James Mason in that movie. Yes. James Mason was in The Last of Sheila with James Coburn. Oh, right on. Last of Sheila. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Is that the one with the um, is that the one with the puppets? Yes. Yes. Okay. We got that. Oh man, you don't have that. I know. I've asked you that before. I think. I in fact, I think it. we've brought the movie up on this podcast before. I want to see it again. I, I did have it on DVD. I don't know what I ended up doing with it. Well, if you had more friends, maybe one of them would have it. Because you gotta have friends. This is true. People who've seen the movie will understand that completely pointless and technically not funny joke. Because you didn't even laugh at it, and you, you even. Oh no, I it. got it, but. Oh, I know. I know you got it <laughs> by the by your lack of reaction. All right. Well, with that, as always, I, you know, I really appreciate you folks listening. You know, yes. I, 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 I'm still amazed every time when I post an episode and I look at it like, oh, look at that. You know, five people right away. That's just it blows my mind that, you know, anybody bothers to tune into, you know, these these two brothers that nobody's ever heard of for any reason that wants to want to babble about their movies so uh i really thank you for it oh uh, we should bet uh, is there any way i think it's been a while since we did do you do you know if uh exorcist 3 is streaming on anything right now i do not okay I guess I, I Google it. I should have checked for that. <laughs> Chances are decent. I mean, it's a pretty well. Again, it's it's a it's a pretty well known movie. I would say it's still underrated. Um, I, I know it's still available through Shout Factory. So, and you know, we love our physical media, and I yeah. always, you know, I don't think everybody needs the film library that we have. No, but you should definitely have some of your favorite stuff on physical media so you can watch it whenever you want. Oh, and agreed. Not have to worry about. Yeah, you know all that nonsense, right? Whether your internet internet's going to work, or your you know device is going to work, or oh, you what, have what is it on streaming. now? Yeah, you, yeah, that you even have a, you know, oh, it's on Netflix. Why well, don't have Netflix? Oh, it's on Hulu. Why well, don't have Hulu? All right. Well, as always, you can follow us on Twitter slash X, whichever you prefer to call it, at Movie Matt Royce, all one word: M O V I E M A T T S I R O I S. We are also on Blue Sky now under the same handle, Movie Matt Soroyce, as well as Instagram. And if you want to find us on Facebook, look for us at the Movie Asylum of the Weird, Bad, and Wonderful. As always, we thank you for listening, and we hope to have you back next time. Thank you, everyone. Stay gold, people. <laughs>